As Eckhart Tolle said, boredom, anger, sadness, or fear are not yours, not personal. They're conditions of the human mind. They come and go. Nothing that comes and goes is you. Join Sue Jackson every Tuesday at 10 a.m. for Finding Human, a look at the wonder that is the human mind, right here on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human, and my guest today is Rabbi Levi Upson, Associate Rabbi of Linksfield Shul, and he was very instrumental in getting me to come onto High FM as a presenter. So, welcome, Rabbi Upson. It's been a while, Sue. It has been a while. This is the first time this year that we're together again. I would like just to dedicate this program to your dad, Rabbi Yona Atzon, who passed away in January. And uh, really, uh, he was an incredible man and did amazing things, which I heard at the, at the, his Shloshim. And, um, you must have been very, you must be very proud of all that you've heard about. Thank him. God. Thank, uh, you know, like in the tremendous pain and sadness, this is also tremendous pride in the person he was and the life he led. Isn't that wonderful? So we dedicate this to Rabbi Yona Atzon. We are, at the moment, we're running a few programs on Proud to be Jewish, anti-Semitism, Israel, conversions, friends of Israel. So we've got a lot of programs in, in place for that. Last week we did a, I did a program with Peter Bailey, uh, Tiyul, on the Tiyul to the south of Israel, to the, commu- the communities on the Gaza border. And it was a solidarity teal. And um, the week before, I had Rab, uh, Dr. Professor Harry Simon in. So, and I wanted to just say that we got messages and photos that came through late on both programs. And I just want you to know that I so appreciate you sending these through. Please go on doing so. I do send them on to the to whoever my guests were for that week. So please go on. Today we've got two YouTubes, one at the end of the program and one in between, a short one. And and at the end, next week I've got Rabbi Ron Hendler, and he's going to be talking on what it means to be Jewish and on conversion. Now, Rabbi Atzon, you and I have got the subject anti-Semitism. And I know that you have very firm ideas, but I would just like to tell you one thing that Churchill said. He said, Winston Churchill said, some people like the Jews and some do not. But no thoughtful man can deny the fact that they are, beyond any question, the most formidable and the most remarkable race which has appeared in the world. Now, you have an opinion on on that, don't you? I can see it in your face. <laughs> What's my opinion? <laughs> your opinion is that, unfortunately, too much is made of, of like, the the incredible properties of the Jews, like the Bell Peace Prize winners and and academics and poets and artists and what have you. Yeah, I'll be honest. It's a, it's a controversial point of view. I'm not saying it as a rabbi. I'm saying it in my own personal capacity as a human being. I, I just wonder why we, we feel the need to boast about that all the time. Are we trying to tell others? Are we trying to tell ourselves? Are we trying to convince ourselves of something? Um, is it necessary? Is that really what makes you special? The amount of Nobel Prize winners you have, um, you know, the ratio versus other people, places in the world. What is that desperate need to sit there just boasting about 
everything the Jews contributed to the world, convincing ourselves that that's going to get us to be liked more and going to, like, what's the agenda? That's all I'm trying to understand. Is that really the best way to combat anti-Semitism? What, in your mind, what is the best way? Oof, you're going straight to the heart of the matter. (laughs) We're not even talking about the causes of anti-Semitism. No, we're going to go to the causes in a moment. But just having said that, what... What do you think? So first and foremost, I think there's a there's two approaches. There's the offensive, and then there's how we deal with it within ourselves. I think the first thing we have to be cautious about is when a person faces anti-Semitism, to not use it as an excuse for us to start being embarrassed of ourselves. In other words, often what happens is, oh gosh, that person hates me. What's What's hateable about me? Maybe I should put my keeper in my pocket. Maybe I should not be proud of my Judaism. Maybe I should not celebrate my identity, which is very different than I was talking about earlier, and that's boasting. There's a very mm. big difference between boasting and celebrating. Celebrating our identity is something that anti-Semitism should never take away because then you let the anti-Semite win. To be able to be proud and authentically proud of who you are and on the offensive approach, it's obviously multifaceted. I don't claim to have the answer to a problem 4,000 years old, but, you know, unbelievable organizations we have here in this country, the Jewish Board of Deputies, um, the various platforms who tackle it both in the, you know, governmental level and the judicial level, educational level, introducing kids, talking, having open, honest conversations of, that we're going to talk in a moment about otherness and how to tolerate the other to take a positive approach of I guess it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand to put our foot down when anti-Semitism is coming our way, but at the same time not only defending against attacks, but proactively sharing with others the idea of acceptance and difference and appreciation. I I absolutely agree with you. But you know, the Jews have always been called um, the canary in the the coal mine. mine. And um, for people who don't know about the canary in the coal mine, it's the miners used to take canaries into the mines with them because the canary would die from the coal gas escaping into the mine shaft before the level of gas could actually kill men or become explosive. So the canary would die and stop. it would stop singing, which is a warning sign to get the men out of the mine. So how is this an apt metaphor for Jews? Underlying the metaphor is the realization that what happens to Jews will befall everyone. And I think that's one of the greatest mistakes that people make, that they think this is anti-Semitism is simply about Jews. It Mm. doesn't end with Jews. And, um, you know, that uh, that man in the, what was his name, Martin Niemöller, you know him? He was a prom- prominent Protestant pastor who emerged as an outspoken public foe of Adolf Hitler. And he actually spent the last seven years in concentration camps. And he said, first they came for the socialites and I did not speak out because I was not a socialite. Then they, a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. So let's unpack this. Mm-hmm. There's, 
there's two ideas. On the one hand, anti-Semitism is a very unique hatred. It is very unique in the fact that it has so many manifestations across the world. On the other hand, it's a common hatred, and that is the hatred of the other. Mm. So it has unique elements, which make it different than, let's say, xenophobia, racism, etc. On the other hand, it has very sim- strong similarities, because hatred of otherness is hatred of otherness. And in, in, it's in that aspect of the similarity to other hatreds, that's where you have the canary in the coal mine. And that is, yes, anti-Semitism is a unique hatred, but it's also very similar to others. And in that similarity, when a person starts hating one person, their heart just becomes full of hatred. And automatically, a heart full of hatred eventually hates everybody. Mm. And violence becomes the norm with that hatred often. Yeah, and it destroys societies. Mm. And it destroys the very fabric of a society because when you hate the other person for being other, automatically the, the definition of who the other is becomes narrower and narrower and closer to home by the day until literally you hate everybody other than yourself and eventually you hate yourself as well. It's so true. We're going to advert. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. My guest today is Rabbi Levi Upson, and our topic is, why you don't know my name, why do you hate me? And if you can SMS us, if you'd like to, on 34519, or you can WhatsApp us on 61 895 Sue, do you mind if I cut in and explain the title of that? Yes, um, I would like you to because you gave me the title. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mentioned to you a story um, without going too much details. I was in Europe uh, many years ago, about 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago. And I had to take a bus to an airport and it was quite a long bus ride. And I was sitting by the window, and there was a seat next to me. And a, a young boy came down and sat next to me. And this young boy had his mom standing there. And when the, ma- the mom noticed that I was Jewish, she yanked the boy and started screaming at him, how dare he sit next to me. The kid was four or five, and I think it was totally... I mean... Bewildered. Besides, uh, bewildered. Like, he, he couldn't understand. And for me... It was the first time I confronted anti-Semitism in my face. In other words, I've read it online. I've got comments a few times. I've, I've, but never literally looking in my eyes. And the first words that came to mind after that was, you hate me and you don't even know my name. Mm-hmm. You, you don't know anything about me, and yet you hate me. And that baffled me, and it still baffles me till today, this hatred of the other without knowing anything of the other other than the fact that they seem other. Mm-hmm. So would you say that anti-Semitism throughout history is because we are labeled as the other? Again, I, I don't want to, I'm very worried of giving the ultimate answer and the ultimate general statement. I think anti-Semitism is a subject that's been discussed in a million different ways and there's a lot of details to it. But I will say that a fundamental issue of anti-Semitism is the fear of the other. The the fear, the hatred, the uncomfortable, you know, be, being uncomfortable with other. And if you'll be honest with yourself, you'll see it in societies across the world. You'll see it even in children. 
We often talk about children as like they love everybody. It's true, usually when they're six months old, a month, you know, like a, a year <laughs> they old. They smile at everyone. Yeah, they smile at everybody. By the age of five, six, they become aware that, you know, that kid looks different to me. That kid's hair is funny. The nose is funny. They walk funny. And often what happens is bullying. Mm-hmm. Um, which very much, you know, we, we focus on the word bullying, but what is bullying? It's the discomfort of otherness. It really is. Obviously, it has a million different details to it, but at the core, you you, you don't really bully someone that doesn't have anything different about them. Mm. You, you you find what makes them different, and you use that as the instigator, the cause of your bullying. You know, you have a weird parent, you have a weird look, you have a weird background, etc. You look funny, you're overweight, you're underweight, whatever it is, and you focus on that otherness. And in, in, in some truth, that's even comedy. What is comedy? You find what's unique about the person, you magnify it, and that, that, that is comedy, okay? So like, you know, certain politicians are very eccentric and different, and it's so easy to make fun of. Other politicians are not so different, <laughs> they're just quite typical, so you actually struggle with material for humor. Otherness is like this trigger for anything from comedy on one spectrum to pure hatred on the other. And that can also manifest in the home. You know, you say that the children begin to notice at that age. But I think before then, the children are picking up nuances from the parents and around the table, people talking about the other, whoever the other might be. Within our own community. Absolutely. And um, in a very derogatory manner. I mean, that's, you know, where it can also manifest in the home like that. Hmm. Uh, and often it comes from insecurity. Um, it comes from a very deep insecurity. That's why you're threatened. The other person's otherness, the different way of life, the different way they look, for some reason makes me feel insecure mm-hmm. in who I am. I mean, because I thought I was the monopoly on truth and I have all the answers and suddenly there's a person living a very different lifestyle than me and looking very different than me and they're still human and they're still God's child. Impossible. I have the monopoly. And I think uh, part of that going right back was because the Jews were the the non-Christians in Europe, the only non-Christians, whereas today in the Middle East we're the only non-Islamists in um, in the Middle Non-Muslim. East. Non-Muslim. Um, Non-Muslim. Yeah, I think it, it, part of anti-Semitism was always of, of a religious character. I don't think it's all of it. I mean, let's be honest, the biggest massacres that happened to the Jewish people in history did not necessarily happen by religious people. The Holocaust wasn't done by religion. Um, Stalin wasn't religious. Mm-hmm. And collectively, they killed, um, in the past hundred years, almost 10 million Jews. Uh, and that was on race and uh, the Darwin... Darwinism theory. Darwinism. Yeah, Darwinism. And, and all the Mishigasin that, you know, Marxism came with and, and, and all the crazy ideas of Stalin and his, uh, it, uh, Stalin, the truth is, didn't even believe in ideas. He just believed in himself. So, um, a lot of anti-Semitism, a lot of race of the 19th century and 20th century, the racism against Jews had nothing to do with religion. So, yes, anti-Semitism at times had to do with, um, religion, but it often had to do just, you look different. You, you act different. You're, you're too successful, you're too poor, you're too this, you're too that. 
And at the core, and it's something that Rabbi Sachs talks about a lot, it's at the core, you know, those are all excuses. Mm. At the core, there's just this feeling of discomfort with this person next to me that is just different. And we try to give it words. We try to verbalize and we come up with excuses for why we hate the other. But at the core, is just like discomfort with somebody that's just different. Do you think it's a human failure that... Um how do you actually overcome something like that? Hmm. Let me ask you a question. When you were a kid, did you ever despise the other? And what, what, what happened after that? In other words, when you said something not nice about somebody else, did your parent teach you to yes, do better? Very okay. definitely. My parents taught me. That it was not right to hate the other or, or to feel that the other was different. And if they were different, what was the difference? Let's look at that and unpack it. So how can we expect children to be comfortable with otherness if their parents are sitting around the dinner table just belittling otherness, mm-hmm. seeing otherness as a threat? Oh, my God, that person dresses different. That person prays differently. That person speaks differently. That person looks different. That person's the other gender. This, that, the, looks different color. When that's the the atmosphere at home, no wonder that you raise another generation of hatred. You know, it's interesting. I remember reading a, a, a statement that says people underestimate the role of home in creating dictatorships. You know, we often sit to think as a bunch of men running uh, running around and turning kids into kid soldiers. But where did the hatred for otherness come from? Did it only come from the military dictatorship, or did it come with the milk they drank at home mm-hmm. and and the and the and the words they heard from their dad and their mom? And you know, saying that, I was reading an article by Deborah Lipstadt. You know, the one who wrote Denial, and she was saying it was written last year, just before Thanksgiving. And she said, "I would like you all to do one thing over Thanksgiving, as you sit down for dinner." She said. And if one of the old uncles or aunts or one of your friends begin to talk about the other, whether it's uh, a, a politician, a black, a white, a Jew, a non-Jew, please, would you stop them and say, can we change the subject, please? We don't want to talk about that at the dinner table. She said, you might not change their opinion. But for the youngsters listening in, you've got a whole new generation that you can actually, hopefully, show that this is not the right way. This losh and horror. Absolutely. The best part of your day. At the heart of your community. All the talk. All the music. All the news. Hi, FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on uh, Finding Human. My guest today is Rabbi Levi Upson. What uh, let's go back to actually how um, what what Deborah Lipstadt was saying about how we talk at our table and how we might not be able to change the person who is talking and gossiping and what have you, but we can change the generations listening in the younger generation. So, so, so I have to qualify something because a subject like anti-Semitism is very delicate. It really is. And in no way am I diminishing the tremendous evil of it. Heaven forbid. But when we see something out there in the world, we have to ask ourselves, do we, do we find within ourselves even a semblance, a tiny... One percent of that. And I think if we want to find 
that within ourselves, we'll find it in our own fear of otherness. Again, as I said, each hatred is unique, but each hatred has something in common, and that is the fear of otherness. And what kind of conversations do you have by your dinner table when something like that comes up? When somebody says an inappropriate joke, a racist joke, how do you deal with it? Mm-hmm. When somebody, you know, just laughs at the other for no other reason other than the fact that they're, they're other. What do you show the kids? Oh, yeah, I agree. We're the only path, the ultimate race, the ultimate way. Or do you sit there admonishing and saying, we don't talk like that in this house. We don't appreciate those kind of jokes. And they're false and they're disgusting and, and they're, they're pure evil. And there's no place for them at our dinner table or our home. Because I don't know if any one of us can solve the anti-Semitism or racism or any other problem. I don't think, I mean, again, I have to give a special call out to the organizations who dedicate resources, time, money, etc. to fight it. But for the average individual on the street, um, other than maybe, you know, posting likes on good Facebook posts, etc., what we can do about this hatred is making sure that it doesn't enter our own hearts. Mm-hmm. And making sure that in our space there is no hatred. And to stay true to who we are, proud of who you are, while at the same time not belittling the other. Because they don't have to come together. It doesn't have to be, I'm special, so you're garbage. Mm. It's, I'm special, and you're special. And that's within our own ranks as well. Within, you know, our own religion, whatever we choose to be, whether it's orthodox, reform, conservative, um, or just you know different levels of orthodoxy in the different uh, sects of orthodoxy uh, there's so much uh, competition and whatever's been said about the other happens there as well i'll be honest a few times in my life i've actually felt that same statement i felt on the bus hmm. where i walk in and yes i look a certain way i have a long beard you know i'm a hasidic jew a chabadnik and i walk in an orthodox i walk in i just look at somebody's face and i'm like you don't even know my name. Why do you hate me? Uh, you know, yes. Like, what do you know about me? Mm. You know nothing. Oh my gosh, those religious. Oh my God, those Chabad. Why? Mm. How? Like, how does that even happen? But you know, on the other hand, what I do really notice and appreciate in, in Jews is the ability to actually criticize themselves, first of all, to look at themselves critically. And in Israel, as a democracy, uh, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been there when they've been protesting against the various, whatever they feel is injustice uh, towards, whether it's the Palestinians, whether it's the Israelis, whatever it might be. That's when democracy is shown because the, the entire Israeli nation will go out and oppose each other for different So causes. democracy must always come with empathy. Yes, definitely. In other words, democracy is I have a voice. But democracy is also you have a voice. Mm, mm. It's not I have a voice and I have the monopoly on the truth. It's I have a voice and you have a voice. And both of us have legitimacy to sit at the table. And it's equality. Because I think equality comes into that. It's not It's not looking at, um, well, I, you're not equal to me. That is definitely not democracy. Democracy, if you're going to be protesting, it's about equality if you're going to be protesting. It's about equality, but I don't like the word equality because we're not all equal. We're all different. In Mm. other words, we're all unique. And we all have a right to say, as long as it's within the parameters of, you know, 
good speech and and positive impact on this world, we all have the right to be able to serve God our own way and do things our own way and dress our own way. And the fact that I dress different than you is in no way belittling your mode of dress. Mm. And the fact that I, you know, talk to God in one language in no way belittles your language. And not because we're equal. We're different. And difference is not only okay. That's the point of the world. God created a world of multicolors. God created the world with 7 billion different personalities. And for those of us who are bipolar, that makes us 14 billion personalities. <laughs> 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 There's billions and billions of personalities, and that's perfectly fine. So there are probably about eight of us in this room. <laughs> oh, no, you're so absolutely. But historically, historically, anti-Semitism has also been an early sign, an early warning sign of a society in danger. Yes, it. But it's often the, the point of no return. Think of every single society that adopted anti-Semitism. The Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, the Germans, the Spanish, etc., etc. The English in their time, and unfortunately a bit t- t- today as well. What happened to their own society? They ended mm-hmm. up always bringing the Jew back 50 years later, 10 years later, 100 years later. Why? Because they realized that, that, first of all, the Jew was a, a tremendous asset. But again, I don't want to focus on that aspect. More than that, they realized it just eroded their whole society. Because the fear of the other just literally destroyed everybody. Everybody started hating everybody. Like, I remember reading a statement about World War II, where two two German soldiers are overheard talking to each other. And they say, oh, these Japanese, because the Japanese were part of the axis of evil. Oh, these Japanese, they're such fools. They don't realize that we hate them as much as we hate everybody else, but we'll just get to them after we finish with everybody else. Mm-hmm. In other words, the, you know, the, the German didn't respect the Japanese. The Japanese was a different race as well. But first they needed the Japanese to join their axis to be able to fight, you know, all the crazy things that was going on in World War II. And eventually they would have got to the Japanese as well. And for me, that's like that's the ultimate statement of hatred. And where it doesn't, it definitely doesn't stop there. You know, um, I mean, for instance, the Jews with with Hitler and um, under Stalin, it wasn't. It certainly wasn't only the Jews who suffered. Hmm. It was, um, you know, it was, it was many other people. And even today, the Hitlers of today, uh, the radical Islamists, for instance, of Hamas, Hamas, Al Qaeda, Boko Haram, uh, Daesh. You know, they certainly are, are not going to just end with the Jews. So there's, they're attacking their own people as well. If they were different, but the Shiites, are, you know, they they are beginning to attack their own people so, as well, and so, any, the, anyone else who's different. So there's an important subtle point to make, and that is that you know when we talk about that the Holocaust didn't only kill Jews, it killed others. Yes, but at the same time, there was a unique hatred for the Jew. Mm. So again, that's where we come back to that delicate subject we've been talking about for the last half an hour, and that is the anti-Semitism is unique and it isn't unique at the same time. And, yeah, the, the, the reality is that hatred b- grows in the heart. And once you hate one person, it's very hard to love somebody else. One of my favorite th- uh, thoughts was someone in the community, uh, Stan, told it to me. He says he one time spoke to Rabbi Shlomo Kalbach. And Rabbi Shlomo, Kal- Shlomo Kalbach was once on the radio here in South Africa. And they asked him, um, do you hate the Nazis? And his answer was, I only have one heart. And if I bring hatred into it, 
it's just going to be full with hatred. I prefer to fill my heart with love. I don't have time to hate the Nazis. Wow, what a wonderful answer. It's, 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 a, it's a very interesting answer. Mm-hmm. It's obviously people will feel, you know, ambivalent about that, that response. What do you mean? Et cetera, et cetera. But I think there's a lot of truth in the statement, and that is we only have one heart. And maybe all the hatred is justified. But do you really want a heart of hatred? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I actually do believe that only the victim can decide whether they hate or not. You know, the rest of us can't decide for the victim that they've got to hate the entire non-German race because of of the Holocaust. And that's what, and that's the, the uh, one of the big punchlines I want to bring up in today's show is that when anti-Semitism starts affecting the Jews' perception of themselves. That's very dangerous. When we start seeing ourselves as victims mm. and when we start seeing ourselves as nebuchals and, oh, my God, they hate us. And, oh, my God, what did we do wrong? And didn't we contribute to the world so much? And look how much Israel made. And if you hate Israel, you should stop using our phones. And you say, I always say I find that, that tactic ridiculous. Uh, forgive me. I just find it like, really, is that the way you get more friends by telling everybody that all the, the, that their phone has chips from Israel? It's not about feeling defensive. Be proud of who you are. Obviously, protect yourself. In organizations like CSO, etc., are incredible. Organizations. Protect yourself. Mm. Don't let that anti-Semitic get to you. But at the same time, don't lose the pride in who you are. Yes, absolutely. I agree. And don't let them define the narrative. And don't walk around all defensive. Like, oh, you, my hatred is unjustified. Of course it's unjustified. Hatred, by definition, is unjustified. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. And, yeah. Yeah, I know. I agree with you there. And, um, you know, you only have to look through throughout history, um, American history, English history, Irish history, uh, at at the hatred for each other as well and the victimhood. And I think we've got to be, as you say, very, very careful not to go into into victimhood. But at the same time, that's one of the things today, which is the new kind of anti-Semitism. I know you don't always agree with me with this one, the new, the Israel and Zionism and um, uh, anti-Semitism going together, the Jews. Uh, let's, let's qualify. I do agree okay. with you that there's a big part, a big part of anti-Semitism today has to do with anti-Israel, etc. But I don't think it's exclusive to that. As been shown recently, you know, whether it's extreme right or extreme left, who don't even bring up Israel anymore, they just hate the Jew for who the Jew is. Mm. But I think because of Israel, the Jew has also um, gone a lot out of victimhood towards uh, because they've got a homeland as well. Do you agree? Yes, but again, not every person. Some people still walk around with victims even while having the land of Israel, you know, mm. they still feel sorry for themselves or they're still trying to impress the world. I'll give you a perfect example, something that resonates with me. This need to sit there, you know, giving away land that's rightfully ours um, without, you know, without remembering God gave us this land. You're going to hear a rabbi, a Lord Jonathan Sachs, just now talking about BDS and it will resonate with you and I. Um, do you know that... Um, that, that I have to agree with. But what about like in America, in, in, uh, I know you've also got an opinion on this, that in, <laughs> sounds like I'm the most opinionated opinion guy in the planet. Everything. Um, what about in, um, in Germany? Uh, it, there was a lot of assimilation in Germany. So it's not as though the Jews, when they choose to, to not be the other, are not still targeted. On the contrary, you find that often the greatest acts of anti-Semitism happened when Jews try to fit into the society more. I'll give you a few examples. Communist Russia. 
according to some estimates, the first communist regime in 1918 was 90% Jewish, characters like Trotsky and others. Mm-hmm. Within 10 years, Stalin took over and literally killed every single Jew. He, he even killed Trotsky in Mexico hmm. um, and literally wiped them out. Now, what do you mean? I understand. The Jew was brought in the revolution. The biggest revolutionaries for communism were Jews, Karl Marx himself. Mm-hmm. Now, on the same time, you have Nazi Germany. The Jews were the doctors, the professors, the lawyers, the politicians, everything. They were so integrated into society, so much so that some synagogues, or, you know, specifically non-Orthodox synagogues, would... Um, change every time it said the word Jerusalem, they would change it to Berlin because Good Berlin's heavens. our new Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's Spain in the 15th century, you know, sp- the, sp- the Jews had achieved incredible status within Spain, um, the golden era of Spain, and they, and they entered every single area of its economy. Whether it was the Pesach story and the Jews integrating into Egypt in the mm-hmm. highest level, Joseph, etc. And the Jew thinks, what do you mean I've integrated? I look like you. I dress like you. I'm the same like you. I fight for you. I'm in your army. Mm. If you look at look, the, look German, at the German, army, German World War One, and you know, and, and and one of the things that baffles the, the, uh, some of the Jews in World War Two, the specifically the German Jews, is what do you mean? I'm German. Mm. I'm more German than Hitler. His Hitler is Austrian. I've been in this country for three hundred years, and the Jew does not understand. You're still the other. Mm. Stop trying to claim that you're not. Nobody believes it. Don't, and that's my point. The way to combat anti-Semitism is not to tell everybody we're just like you. Mm. The point, the, no, the way to combat it is to teach people to appreciate difference. Because what, if you tell people like me because I'm like you, what you're saying is the only reason you should like me is because I'm like you. Mm. But again, that doesn't tackle the otherness problem. We have to teach each other to love people despite their otherness because their otherness. And we go back to bullying there as well, very much so. You know, if you if you see the bullying in in school today, I mean, that's where everything starts. You know, right as you said, from a very young age, they begin to notice. Uh, I want to bring up an interesting point of uh, recent history. In the 1970s, um, Chabad in America started putting up menorahs, public menorah lightings in the mid-70s. And... Quickly, it caught fire and started going all across the United States. And a lot of well-meaning Jews felt it to be an absolutely ridiculous thing, an abomination. Why are we putting ourselves out there? Antisemitism is going to rise. Why are we putting ourselves out there? It eventually even went to the Supreme Court of the United States. And one thing the Rebbe would say over and over, there's a lot of letters where he corresponds with you know, a lot of Jews, well-meaning people. He says, on the contrary, then today's day and age, people respect people who are proud of themselves. And not only will it not um, cause anti-Semitism, it will combat anti-Semitism to see people who are proud of who they are. Mm. And for me, like one of the great moments of pride is one time I had a stopover in Munich. And to be able to get out in the airport and not be embarrassed of who I am, but on the contrary, go put on my talus, go put on my tefillin, go pray, and to be able to celebrate my identity. And to, you know, often we're awkward and we're, you know, we're feeling, oh my gosh, should I shine over here? Should I wear my yarmulke? Should I wear my kippah? Should I look very Jewish. And the answer is, of course you should. Mm-hmm. Obviously, within the realms of safety. I'm not saying there's certain places a person should go and just be cautious. But on the most part, when it comes from our own insecurity, we should never allow our insecurity to define our narrative. So when they talk about the rise of anti-Semitism in the world today, what do you think the cause of that is? Um, again. Is it a nation at... at uh, 
travel think, with itself? I think there's a lot of facets. And again, I'm not going to claim to have all the answers. Israel's definitely an element. Um, I think the fact that 70 years after the Holocaust and therefore um, after the Holocaust, after the shock of the Holocaust, it was just too unpopular to say you hate Jews because mm-hmm. look what it led to. By now, Holocaust denial or Holocaust forgetfulness, I'm not, you know, not even sure what's worse anymore, um, is rampant. Um, how many people around the world don't even know what the Holocaust is? I was watching this YouTube video. Somebody's walking on the streets of Hollywood and asking people what the Holocaust is, and people have no clue. Um, and and suddenly, old hatreds that lie dormant came up. I don't think it's a new hatred. It's just popular again to share it, to talk about it. We'll have to just wait there, and Rabbi um, Sex will be coming on, on a YouTube now. The boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaign against Israel is dangerously wrong. Because beneath the surface, it's an attempt to delegitimize Israel as a prelude to its elimination. No Jew and no humanitarian can stand by and see that happen. Besides which, it will harm the very people it seeks to help, prolong the situation it seeks to end, and lead to wrongs in the name of rights. I support the right of Palestinians to a state of their own and the right of Palestinian children to a future of dignity and hope. But the BDS campaign will achieve neither of these things. Let me explain why. Human rights are the rights we have because we are human. They are universal or they are nothing. So the test of any movement in support of human rights is, is it really universal? Or is it a matter of rights for some, but not for others? If the BDS movement were really about human rights, its supporters would be protesting the breakdown of human rights in countries across the Middle East, in Africa, and around the world. They would be demonstrating against the barbarism of ISIS. They would be campaigning against the abuse of human rights by Hamas in Gaza. Any nation can be held to account at the bar of human rights, but in a world awash with human rights abuses, to focus on one nation only, and that the only effective democracy in the Middle East looks less like a campaign for human rights than a campaign against Israel's very right to be. It is, in fact, the latest chapter in a sustained attempt to do just that. In 1948, 1967, and 1973, Israel's enemies tried to destroy it militarily by war, and they failed. Beginning in 1973 with the Arab boycott, they tried to destroy it economically, and they failed. In 1975, with the notorious Zionism is racism motion in the United Nations, they tried to destroy it politically, and they failed. From 1994 to 2002, by a campaign of suicide bombings, they tried to destroy it psychologically, and they failed. Now, through the BDS campaign, they're trying to delegitimize it morally. This too will fail, but it's serious. It's based on a vicious lie that Israel is a colonial presence in the Middle East. It's nothing of the kind. The Jewish connection with the land of Israel goes back roughly twice as long as the history of Christianity, three times as long as the history of Islam. Jews are the only nation in history ever to have established a nation-state in the land, and the only nation never to have lacked a presence there. And because Israel is the world's only Jewish state, 
and the only state whose very right to exist has been constantly challenged. The campaign against it is recognizably the latest mutation of the world's oldest hate, anti-Semitism. VDS will fail because when people seek to end a conflict by focusing on only one party to that conflict, they don't end it. They perpetuate it. There could have been a Palestinian state in 1947 with the United Nations vote for partition. In 1948, when the modern state of Israel was born. In 1967, after the Six-Day War. In 2000, at Camp David. 2001, at Taba. In 2007, under Ehud Olmert. And since. In each case, Israel said yes, offering land in exchange for peace. But the Palestinian leadership said no. And even when Israel unilaterally withdrew from territories such as South Lebanon in 2000 and the Gaza Strip in 2005, the space was immediately filled by terrorist organizations, Hezbollah and Hamas, dedicated to Israel's destruction. Simply put, the BDS campaign will delay, defer and endanger the very chance of a Palestinian state, prolonging the suffering it seeks to end. This is because it misrepresents the conflict as a zero-sum game. Either Israel wins and the Palestinians lose, or the Palestinians win and Israel loses. But the conflict is not a zero-sum game. From war and violence, both sides lose. From peace and security, both sides win. If we really care about the rights of Palestinians, then we must care about those of Israelis likewise. Rights are universal, or they are nothing. And if they're merely a concealed form of hate, then they become not rights, but wrongs. Any movement for human rights or peace or justice must be fair to all sides, recognize the rights of all sides, seek the agreement of all sides, and win the trust of all sides. The BDS campaign, which seeks to intimidate and silence the other side, fails these tests. Which is why all who care for our shared humanity must find another and better way. You know that uh, Martin Luther King said about uh, Zionism and anti-Semitism. He said when people criticize Zionists, they mean Jews. You're talking anti-Semites, anti-Semitism. He says peace for Israel means security, and we must stand with all our might to protect its right to exist, its territorial integrity, and the right to use whatever sea lanes it needs. I see Israel, and never mind saying it, as one of the great outposts of democracy in the world, and a marvelous example of what can be done, how desert land can be transformed into an oasis of brotherhood and democracy. Peace for Israel means security, and that security must be a reality. That was Martin Luther King at the uh, in 1968, in March 1968. So, you know, what um, What did you think about what Rabbi Sachs had to say there? Of course. I mean, first of all, Rabbi Sachs is an incredible speaker, uh, and his elegance yeah, absolutely. BDS is a is an organization that's counterproductive to everybody it's trying to serve, and definitely to those who it's trying to attack. Um, and what's scary is how many people you know join the BDS really thinking they're well intentioned. Mm. 
And in general, I often find that many people who join hateful movements join well-intentioned. Well-intentioned. Yeah, you see a lot of people, you know, like, it's very easy to sit there saying that every every person that votes for a populist is a hater, and every single person who, you know, is moving away from democracy is a hater. It's it's often not like that. Um, It's often well-intentioned people who connect to some moral high ground that that the, the leader claims to believe in mm. and joins. And that's why literally the road to hell is paved with good intentions because people don't sit back and actually ask themselves, is this the right thing? Yes, I want to help the Palestinians. Is BDS the right answer? Yes, I want to bring peace to the Middle East. Is boycott the correct response? Nah, no, nah, no. Nah. It, it sounds all pure and idealistic. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it sounds moral, and everybody loves playing the moral high ground. I mean, that's what he was just saying, that people love delegitimizing Israel on the morality aspect. And I'm saying, before you sit there before you sit there delegitimizing morality, look in the mirror and actually ask yourself, what is moral and what isn't moral? Mm-hmm. You know, and before you sit there hating the other and cloaking it in, in, in there's a word in Hebrew, tzitkanut, self-righteousness. Just ask yourself, you know, very, very, are, are you really on the moral high ground? Mm-hmm. When you hate the other claiming that God's on your side or right is on your side, do you know that? Because gosh, there are seven billion people and each person thinks they have the monopoly on, on righteousness. And we have to ask ourselves some deep, hard questions and that is, is hatred ever justified? Is it ever moral to hate? And how can morality and hatred ever be a combination? Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. My guest today is Rabbi Levi Upton. No breaks, huh? huh? No, more breaks. No breaks. No breaks, absolutely. <laughs> I'm hitting him with questions all the time. He's taking deep breaths here. Um, you can SMS us on 34519 or you can WhatsApp us on 061-895-1019. Often we both hear about things afterwards. I just wanted to tell you just to bring in a bit of a joke here. An English Jew, a prominent novelist and, and intellectual, is informed that he'll be knighted. The Queen's protocol officials prepare him and the other knights-to-be for the ceremony. He is informed that when he stands before the Queen, just before being knighted, he is to recite certain Latin words. On the day of the ceremony, the man is very nervous, and sure enough, when he approaches the Queen, he forgets the Latin expression. As precious t- seconds tick by, the only non-English words that he knows pour out of him. Manishtana halala hazeh mekol halelot. The queen, confused, turns to her protocol officer and asks, Why is this night different from all other nights? A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. Knighthood will not change that fact. Sooner or later, the differences between this night and all the other nights will become apparent. So if we're talking about dark humor, (laughs) there's a good joke about the communists that uh, the story is told that the the people have to wait in bread lines. Um, Unfortunately, when communism showed its wonderful success in in bringing food to everybody, there used to be bread lines. My own aunts and uncles used to wait in the bread line, and sometimes you could wait a whole day and end up with one piece of bread, one loaf of bread, and sometimes nothing. So the story goes... Everyone's waiting in line from 6 in the morning. At 10 o'clock in the morning, the baker opens the door and screams and says, there won't be enough bread. All Jews go home. At 12 o'clock, he opens the thing. It's still no bread. He screams and says, 
well, there won't be enough bread today, so all non-communists go home. Uh, find 2.30 in the afternoon, he, he opens up again and says, it looks like we're not going to have enough bread. All females go home. And finally, at 6 p.m., he opens up and says, I'm sorry, there's no bread. Everybody go home. And one communist turns to the other and says, I always say the Jews get the best treatment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Would you say anti-Semitism is, an, uh, is eventually attack against democracy? Against democracy? Mm. I mean, it's, it's much worse than that. It's a, it's a, it's attack against human dignity. Okay. Um, you know, let's, let's go back to the basics. God created every human being and created every single human being, but Salma Kidmusa in his, in his shape and form. Hating another human being is hating God, is hating the fundamental of this world, and that is that seven billion people of diverse backgrounds come together and make the world a better place. Hatred of the other is literally hatred of the world. It's hatred of everything. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't only underscore democracy, it, it underscores the basic humanity. I mean, for crying out loud, if you hate the other, how are you going to have a happy marriage? I often say, you know, like when, when I hear sexist jokes or, um, you know, each gender laughing at the other, yes, if it's good naturally, it's fine. But often it's not in a good nature. Oh gosh, women. Oh gosh, men. Like, one second, didn't you realize God designed the world, you know, that's the way it works. Mm-hmm. Different people come together and they combine and they build a beautiful relationship um, together. Hatred of the other undermines everything. It undermines everything. And unfortunately, like when you see in today's society that people are looking for the strongman mentality and they're looking for someone to blame for all their insecurities, they're looking for someone to blame for all their issues. Oh, guys, we've been trying this for 5,000 years to blame, whether it was the Jew or somebody else. Do yourself a favor. Forget about the Jew. Mm-hmm. Cut it out. I promise you, hatred never solves anything. Absolutely. I have to agree with you. Craig is telling us we've got to wrap up. But I read a very interesting article by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs called The Unfinished Book. And at the end of the article, he actually says, Jew- Jewish time always faces an open future. The last chapter is not yet written. The Mashiach has not yet come. Until then, the story continues. And we, together with God and others, are its co-authors. Thank you so much, Craig. And thank you very much indeed, Rabbi Afsan.